0: Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia.
1: On episode 40, I interview Wade Tink, the co-founder and general manager of Project Everest Ventures. We discuss his varied life journey between high-level sports, studying finance at university, joining the army to learn leadership, investment banking, working in startups, charities, and creating his own social enterprise. We discuss common misconceptions about social entrepreneurship, as well as when charities work best versus when social enterprise does. Hear how he became one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia, doing over $2 million in annual revenue before COVID slashed revenues by 75% and required him to refocus and rebuild. Why he is building a Y Combinator for B Corps and how he sees a future where social enterprises are the norm of the business world and not the exception. If you want to make a positive social impact with the power of enterprise as a university student or as a partner, check out projecteverest.ventures. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-E-V-R-E-S-T dot V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. So I'm here with Wade Tink, the general manager and co-founder of Project Everest Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, Wade.
0: Thanks for having me, Derek. It's awesome to be here. Appreciate it. That's all
1: right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Project Everest? Um, what did you study? What type of organisations or roles were you in?
0: Um. Yes. Yeah, so. A um, bit of a random way to get to such a lefty place of running a social enterprise or, you know, being involved in this. I actually had a fully uh, experience. I did finance at university. So I was caught up in the investment banking era, um, you know, when that was the coolest thing to slice bread. And, um, and then I came out of university and I actually went into the military because I wanted to learn leadership and management. I knew I wanted to have my own business one day. And I thought um, leadership and management is going to be something I'm going to need to know and be good at. And I thought, where can I get the most amount of responsibility at the youngest age? And that was the army. And I was always interested in it. And I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So I joined and um, went through RMC full time and then went on operations and then ended up teaching other people how to be officers. Um, And then I ended up going for selection, got injured, got out. Um, I'm still in the reserves, but I was not full time anymore. And then I went into investment banking and, um, did the whole corporate sellout and it was awesome. And then I joined a startup and from there, it was at that point, um, in the startup that I got introduced. No, I actually, sorry how it happened. I had a friend from a long time back and he had gone down the path of starting a charity and, basically had a whole bunch of issues and he to give you a long story short and it's a pretty cool story that he was at university he wanted to help the world and he felt that it would be best to do it on the ground so he went overseas and then he started this charity to raise funds to build an orphanage classic story right mm-hmm. i hear it all the time <laughs> even today And, um, $40,000 is what he thought it was going to cost him to do this or he had to raise, you know, it cost him like (laughs) $450,000, seven years of his life. And it turned out that as soon as he'd finished it, the partners basically locked him out of the orphanage and he was, you know, it was, it could be viewed in very many different ways, but he thought, you know, what the hell, like, you know, this is an existential crisis. And he was like, I want to make sure no university student ever does that again. And so that's how we started out. He came to me and he said, Look, I want to do this. I want to teach university students about not doing that, not doing what I did. Would you be keen to come and talk to them about and help them to get ready to go overseas? Like to make it, you know, um, given you know, risk management, you've been in the army, you know, how to get people to work together, you know, how to pull that stuff. And so I rocked up and I, didn't really know what I was going to do Um, and I took these students for a weekend and it changed everything like it was bizarre and it was such a weird case of when I was young I dealt with um, kids who were in uh, high school I was a very good tennis player Um, and I taught tennis to kids who were like you know 12 13 Mm -hmm. and I remember I walked off the court the first time I did it my doubles partner was amazing tennis player. Um, he still coaches to this day and we walked off the corner. and I said, I'm never doing that again. And so I just shut out the whole idea of teaching and education. And, and it was just such a weird thing that, you know what I mean? And, it, and now I'm deep in it and I, I can't imagine what doing myself doing anything else. So for me to do this weekend, it was like helping out a mate. And then when I did it, I really loved it. And then it kind of went from there and, um, and it was a slow journey. But and, and what
1: was the divide from? Like you said, you really were keen to lead people to be a leader, be um, you know, a leader of people. Yet you didn't want to do sort of teaching. Was it the age of the students? Was it tennis? you were over. Were you thinking in more in corporate, military sort of leadership versus you know helping sport and kids? Or what was that divide? Where you really didn't like teaching kind of sport, but you loved the idea of kind of leading. I guess in, into um, you know, in, in a higher stakes environments.
0: I think when I was like, I was so naive and young, like I still am. You know what I mean? I'm still like half of me is completely naive. And I think that when I thought of leadership, you know, when you're young, you think of leadership as being like, oh, like, I don't know, shaking hands and kissing babies and being <laughs> a and being all this. And um, anyone who has been a leader and been mm. knows that that's just bullshit. And I think that the army taught me firstly about teaching as a concept. Um, And I really loved it in the army, but like, I felt that it was always the army culture and the environment that made it that something I liked Mm. in a sense, when you think about the army, like they have to listen to you, right? So it's kind of like, you're at a serious advantage. Um, You're an officer, you've got Mm. rank, there's Mm. an authoritative situation. And so, you know, I mean, they have to, they have to partake. And so I always thought, well, that was the advantage that made me actually be able to do it. And I never had ever engaged in the concept other than dealing with kids about whether they have a choice to participate. And I think this was the first time that someone had, you know, chosen to be there and they didn't walk away going, throwing the racket or throwing, you know, and going, that was shit. It was actually the opposite. It was like, Holy fuck. That was amazing. And it saved a lot of the other future problems that we had. And so I think that it kind of turned for me. It's like, I really love dealing with youth um I really loved um that we were working for something that meant something um and it wasn't just a business kind of environment and you know we believe we could change the world and so that's where it all started if that makes so, sense. So,
1: so when so, you were at high school before you decided to study finance it feels like very different paths you've got sort of athletics you've got the military, you've got university, you've got finance, you've got charities. Was there? Were you involved in charities as, as a teenager? Were you more involved in sport? Were you more interested in direct entry into the army? Like it, it, Again, they feel so sort of separate. How did you sort of pick finance uh, or was there one you loved but one everyone else was pressuring you to do? How did you sort of choose the order and choice of what you did?
0: It's, it's actually interesting because my um, dad, uh, he f- had a failure in business when he was younger and he um, – didn't go back to it. Like he was very technical, and he was a plumber, and he was exceptionally good at it. He had his own business there, but then he tried to go into business in another area. It didn't work out, and he basically cut it to the side. My uncle was the opposite. His older brother, and he did really well in business. And so, when I was younger, I went to my uncle and I said, "You know, what do I? What should I do? I want to be like you, in a sense." And he said, "You should basically become a doctor." And I was like. So what, you know, he's like, no, they get paid the most it's um, safe, secure income. Um, you know, you should do that. And this is guy who, you know, and I admit this to you, Derek, but um, our family came from Frankston, right? My, uh, my uncle went to, and you, you're laughing because, you know, <laughs> everyone knows Frankston, right? My uncle and my dad went to Frankston high uh, and I love Frankston and I'm all for it. And, uh, but it's, you know, even people in Frankston high would say it's probably not the best place to come from. And so he'd built his way all the way up to be quite successful. And so in him telling me to go be a doctor. So in year going into 11, 12, the final years, I chose all chemistry, physics, you know, all the subjects you need to become a doctor. And then about three months, just past the point where you can't change your subjects. I realized that I wasn't going to be good at any of them. So in a sense, flunked my HSC versus what I should have got. And, but I knew that I wanted to go into business and I got into commerce at Sydney Uni And then when I went there, I only really discovered finance. I mean, it was by accident. I was just in a, I was never the kid growing up that I suppose I was ambitious and I knew I worked hard, but I didn't have the exposure. Like I I didn't live in Sydney. I grew up in Port Macquarie and then I grew up in Armidale. Um, I wasn't surrounded by kids who had dads who were investment bankers or anything like that. I didn't know, you know, all I knew was I wanted to have my own business at some point and I thought it would be some kind of small you know, window kind of business or something like that. I just didn't think about it. And to be honest, as you said, like, as I was going through my path, it was very conservative, you know, like my parents all voted liberal, you know, everything was very much, that was the way you were going to do things. And I never really had the concept of, you know, changing the world or, um, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, or charities or anything like that, you wouldn't catch me, you know, raising money to, you know, for some kind of charity cause. Um, and it's interesting that you bring that up because other people bring that up to me. I don't think it conflicts with where I am, if that makes sense.
1: And, and so I guess, so the underlying theme of sort of tying the threads together is you wanted to lead and sort of help people. Um, as well as sort of obviously achieving something for yourself. So one idea was business and you'll learn about finance, investment banking, another was the army sort of lead and help people and then you've sort of through your friend got into the idea of charity because that's, again, another sense of sort of leading and helping people. And you mentioned obviously they had a negative experience with the charity as a sort of structure. What made you sort of want to do a social enterprises versus saying, well, the ch- concept of charity is fine, it's just that charity, maybe the partner was wrong, location was wrong, um, you know, methodology, background checking was wrong how did you sort of decide to do a social enterprise because I feel now you hear a lot more about social enterprise a lot less about charity is it a broader shift is it a particular thing that made you want to lean in that direction versus running a pure not-for-profit
0: yeah well be I like I had the opportunity to learn like and that was really cool and it was like over a number of three or four years I had um I had a lot vested in what we were doing but I wasn't I had my own job. Like I was still in corporate. I was working. So I worked for the startup we did well. Um, and then I worked into another corporate. And so I was doing all this on the side and to give you context in one week, I measured it and it was an, an unusual week, but I, unusual month, but I did 160 hours working in this, um, social enterprise slash charity whilst I still had my full-time job. And it was like, you know, I had to take weeks off to do that. Mm. And, I was focused so much on it, but then in that experience, I got to determine like, okay, what's the benefit of a charity? What's the benefit of a social enterprise? And how are these things coming together? And I think the thing that got me about it was I was in, speaking to young people, engaging with them, and working with them. And the thing with a young person is that it's it's never until now been a situation, and even now, people most people don't realize it that it is a viable career option, and. Up until now, it's always been that doctors are the only people in society who can make a social impact, be the person who does good and helps people like at a real deep level and makes a shitload of income. If you think about it, if you go to work in a charity or any kind of other area, you want, to, want to help people, social workers or anything like that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's almost like it's this people get so emotional about the idea that you could earn significant money doing that. It's like, there's a block like mentally in our society saying that if you are going to go and help people in a charity, you have to be a martyr. And it's like, why? Like, why is that? Like, do we, is mother Teresa so ingrained in our you know psyche that you cannot go and help people and make money at the same time. I just think it's such a narrow thinking and it just really frustrated me. And I just encourage and a push this agenda with anyone because charities have their own problems in that p- charities attract people in their twenties and you know, cause they're willing to be a socialist in their twenties. But when you get to your thirties, you see the employment in charities just drop off a cliff because people in their thirties need to become capitalists. They need to think about buying a house. They need to think cause they have kids, they get married and then they need to put their kids in school and everything like that. And so they off, they just leave charities and droves and they have to go off and become sensible and have a career. It's like, no, like there's companies out there and this company, particularly in South Africa, sorry, not South Africa, Africa, it started in Rwanda, it was founded by a US um, crew and they're called Zipline and you might've heard of them. I know that some of the listeners might've heard of them, but if you haven't fucking looked them up, they're, they're our like, you know, idol in terms of a company um, they have been, they service the poorest of the poor and what they do is they use drones to create life-saving deliveries of blood and medicine products. So in Rwanda, it would, if someone was dying in childbirth, it would take four to five hours to get blood products or medical support out to them, right? Via vehicle. Cause the roads are so bad. Whereas they created a drone, which can drop those medical products in about 10 to 20 minutes. And so it's so fucking obvious and it's so good, but it, it required so much to do that. And they worked in partnership with the government. And just the thing about this story is recently they raised 172 million or so at a 1.4 billion valuation, becoming like the first real unicorn that is entirely predicated on social change and social support to the poorest of the poor in Africa. And you're like, Holy shit, that guy, and I his name is like Renati or Renate, it's, it's difficult for me to pronounce. That is, the, he's the legend, like, he's the one that I look to and go, you know, that's what we want to be, and that's what we want to create and support. So, yeah, I just so there's a thinking.
1: divide, I guess, like you're highlighting between a lot of people assume if profit is good, then non profit, I mean, if profit is bad, sorry, non profit is good, but like, say, often not the case, a lot of nonprofits maybe not doing great work. And there's no reason why you can't make a profit and do something good. It's not evil to make a profit. It's not virtuous to not make a profit. And sort of the synergy and the sustainability of a profitable thing that is doing good is actually more self-sustaining and uh, perhaps more virtuous than something that's unable to sustain itself or scale or develop technology or reinvest or support the communities and the people and employees. Like you said, Bill's career goals and their other personal goals. obligations without being a martyr because it's not sustainable versus a for-profit social enterprise that's sustainable to the extent in which it can reinvest and grow and help um, and make a profit, not at the exception of making a
0: profit. Exactly. Exactly. It's so, so key. I mean, like, yeah, and I feel like this is a topic that you could talk about forever in itself, particularly the, just this idea that all profits evil. And I feel that, you know, like when we first came out and we started working with universities, we were, we were rejected. I remember this of a university because we were for profit, right? We're a social enterprise We're doing good. Now <clears throat> I just like, fundamentally you just can't be here. And the, the irony of that is a very famous university is a very successful university in Australia. The irony of the, of this is that the person who was responsible for telling me this and making this decision was someone who had left university had started a charity and had been a martyr all the way into his age of 32 or so or 33 at the time. I got along with him super well. We were the same age. He was in jiu-jitsu, and I'm in jujitsu and, you know, and, and yet he could not like, you know, in terms of rapport, he could get, not get over the idea that I had started this company with other people and was working to create a social outcome and be for profit and, versus his path which had been to you know and he had to leave that charity in other people's hands and move on with his life and accept this job at the university because of the, the financial challenge right and it's just like you know we as a, we need to work and understand what this is and where we're going with this as a collective and you know thank you waters and you know who gives a crap and these big name companies they're they're in the space of consumer products that service you know us and then take the profit and invest it somewhere else there is a lot more that social enterprise can do beyond that um and you know like our model which we, you know we're trying to fulfill is where the impact is felt at, at the an in individual level like you know what I mean it's it's a different it's inherent in the product or service itself so Yeah, I could talk about it for days. I love it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so you've got your co-founder. You've got this idea. You've seen the challenges of the uh, not-for-profit model. You've decided to make a social enterprise um, and you're keen to make profit so that you can do good, not the uh, exception of doing good. Um, you've obviously had a lot of success, growing 56% last financial year, um, doing over $2 million in annual revenue and becoming one of the fastest growing new companies in Australia, which like you said is you know, not something people would expect from most social enterprises but a, a testament to the success of your model. So what was it like when you sort of hit that rapid growth point? I mean was there something you changed? Was there an adjustment, a tweak that sort of allowed that success or was it did it take off fairly quickly right from when you started?
0: It took off fairly quickly um in saying that we had the experience because we started this social enterprise and project Everest ventures on our like it was separate for what we were doing before mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I got all the learnings from what I was doing before and um I could see you know I wasn't I wasn't I was one of the key people there but I wasn't you know the founder of that organization so I got to learn a lot from what was going on there and then once we got going, like we started in the basement of our, (laughs) my house at the time, just up the road, literally from where I'm sitting now. And, uh, we knew what we were trying to do and we just went at it hard and, you know, it's sales first and it took off pretty quickly. And it was just a series of things that happened to line up, um, that got us, you know, into that situation over the first few years where, it was pretty rapid. So, and who,
1: who were the believers and who were the doubters? Like were the students super on board with, yeah, I want to do this? or And was it the big institutions, university? Who were the doubters? Were some students skeptical? Were some universities championing you? What was the, the sort of breakdown of who, who loved it and who was sort of skeptical?
0: Yeah, it was a mix of, of both, like of all those. So there was a couple of universities that fully backed it and loved it. And then there was um, some who, you know, even as I said, didn't at all. And then there was students who (laughs) like so fit the model of an early adopter. Like they were, you know, textbook early adopters. They were just like, fuck yes. Like I need this in my life from the perspective of the younger generation wants social change. They want to be involved And our mission underneath everything is to to democratize development. We want to make it accessible for everyone to be able to contribute to the sustainable development goals and make a difference. And so they were like, fuck yeah, like you know what I mean I'm sitting in my university, I'm doing this, and I'm not getting it. And I'm just like, you know, I'm frustrated. And here you guys are, you're offering me, you know, subject credit and you're offering me the opportunity to go overseas and you're offering me the opportunity to go to these insane countries which have, you know, what I mean, off the grid and make a social impact and be and learn how to do this and be at the center and and be you know, eyeball to eyeball with where, where it really matters. Oh, fuck. It was like crazy.
1: <laughs> so was that essentially, I guess, a gap? Like there were a certain amount of students um, that were looking for that adventure and that experience, maybe even somewhat like yourself when you join the Army after uni, maybe some love the theory, the class, but others say, what's the point? Or maybe they go on exchange, but then they're just sitting in a classroom on the other side of the world, right? They're still not actually... Doing something different—it's the same thing in a different country. Whereas you're saying, "Hey, come with us. We'll take you to somewhere really different." And it's not just sitting in a lecture hall, a tutorial. You're actually going to make an impact, but also challenge yourself. And that's that sort of gap, I guess. You you were able to uh, meet for the people who wanted it.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a huge actually thing you picked up on there. For me, when I was at university, like I was, um, you know, I was I was young. I was idealistic, like hugely. And so a part of like of me joining the military, like there's a logical reason, there's an emotional reason, right? For everything in sales, you're in sales, you know that. And so the logical reason was to learn leadership and management. And then the emotional reason was that I did want to make a difference. And underlying that, I wanted to be in a situation later in my life where, you know, no one could, could have say that I didn't, you know, I didn't put my hand up and do service and be there for my country when I need it because I don't want to ever be sending someone later in my life to war if I wasn't willing to do it when I was growing up. Right. And so I've believed that by joining the army, I could make that difference and I could be in those environments, eyeball to eyeball that really matters because I trust me to make that right decision in that right period of time. And so when I joined the army, you know, like I was, um, I went through the training and everything and I remember being deployed and I was like in this situation where I was deployed and it was like, you know, coming off and it, it really hit me when I was loading up my ammunition into my my assault rifle. And I was like, you mean know, I was loading bullets and I was like, fuck, is this is this is this how I'm gonna make a difference? You know what I mean? Like, you know, through through this means. And I, you know, it was a difficult time, it was really challenging, really difficult. And I fucked up a lot, made a lot of mistakes and I kind of walked away from that experience. And I think that so much of it was a case of I mean, I didn't have an opportunity like Project Everest when I was at university. And so a whole part of the passion project for me was to make it so that people didn't join the army. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I like I don't discourage people from joining the military, but I, I'm pretty, pretty much down that path. Like I do think it's a great thing, but at the same time, there's probably a lot better ways that you can make a positive impact. And so, you know, I was trying to feel in a way, looking back and I was trying to scratch my own itch in a sense of of what I felt passionate about.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like you had to try a lot of different things to get there because there was often a case of you wanted part of the package but not the whole package. You wanted to lead but not to teach kids. You wanted the business world but not the corporate world. You wanted the army and the travel but not the sort of shooting people and then you are finally <laughs> able to sort of get one which sort of ties both together business and impact without the aspects you don't like and with aspects you do like. So that sort of trial and error to get to one where you actually like the full package and you're excited about it and you're not trying to like half of it and hate the other half. Is that a good summary?
0: (laughs) I think you sound like my wife. It's like everyone's trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? Yeah. We try to do that with everything and, you know, same here. So, but hey, if we are not willing to push it and Mm. make that happen and, and and try and have your cake and eat it too like you're not going to push the world forward no and
1: you wouldn't have found that gap where you you do have your cake and eat it too right like you said you (laughs) run a business you can make money can make a profit and you can have social change and you can help people travel learn so you were able to take the best bits of all those different um, industries institutions um, experiences and put that and to create your own I guess experience and that didn't exist and and share that with other people like you said who might have been hating their job in the corporate world, hating their time in the army, hating their time in, you know, some other job, you're able to sort of get those people um, and give them something that they like, not something like they only half like.
0: Yeah, I never thought about it, but we have done that, I suppose, yeah. And it's uh, it's true.
1: (laughs) And, and, And so what are the people like sort of before, during and after they come back. So so you're talking to people, a lot of people are often excited, I imagine, information session, they're all on board. The university says, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a platform. And then, you know, people are excited, not everyone follows through, but then the ones who do follow through, what, what's their sort of personal transformation and journey like um, once they're, they're on one of these projects and sort of come back? And what's that um, experience, that change you see in the individuals uh, that you work with?
0: Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, it's pretty profound. And I think that one of the key things that's so early in their their you know process, their trajectory, so you can change their trajectory for their entire career. And there's like a lot of research that shows that over it sees experience at university um, means that people start, uh, they have more likelihood of getting a job, they start on a higher salary, and they accelerate through their careers faster. So there's a lot of research to support it. But at the same time, I mean, the personal experience, I, I like people, you know, bond incredibly and all those kind of things. But I think that beyond that and that, that transformation comes into this realization around social enterprise and the power of it and the ability to take this and, and push it forward in the world. And I just look at it and say like, you know, there's an element of what we, we do in, in the social impact. Cause the social impact is orientated at the communities. That's where we're trying to orientate it to. And there's a huge element of, you know, just what happens with students. And one of the things that I always keep in mind is if I can, you know, find and inspire, um, you know, the next founder of Zipline, the next Elon Musk, I mean, fuck, that wouldn't be a life wasted. That's for sure. So, yeah, I think that's, it's pretty profound and that social enterprise model and what they can do in changing their a lot of people change their degrees, change what they're focusing on. They get into business, they get into startups, um, you know, at least they're a lot open, more open to it as well. So it's been pretty profound.
1: And is there sometimes a case of people go there thinking they're going to get one thing, I'm going to go like yourself. So you think you're getting leadership, maybe you think you're getting international experience, but you come back with sort of something very different than what you may be expected to learn or experience?
0: Yeah, what most people say that they join us to do is to, um, get university credit, um, get real life experience, and see it as a stepping stone for their um, the next stage. So it's like, hey, stepping stone to get a corporate internship or a corporate job or something like that. So they're the reasons that people come on board, which they they tell us. And then when they come back, they say the actual value they got from it was. You know, that was just a tick in the box, like those things, which was so insignificant versus, and it was still there versus the things that they got, which is, I found a community of people who I can engage with and connect with about things that actually fucking matter which is, you know, social impact, moving in the world forward and, you know, going out and making things happen because you're not the same person, just like this, you're not the same person when you finish your marathon as when you start a marathon, right? You're not the same person once you've done something like this and when you were, when you started, um, that community, that connection. The second thing is just to the startup stuff and understanding how startups work, how to build a business from scratch, what innovation is, what lean methodology is, design thinking, all that, and how it can be applied to solve problems in very, very different contexts. And then, you know, all these soft skills that they come back with as well and then that changed perception of how small the world is and what I can actually do to make an impact in that.
1: Yeah, and so speaking about social enterprises more broadly, what, what do you see sort of Australian social enterprises doing well? What what sort of gives you a lot of optimism? And, and where are we, you know, maybe lacking behind other markets, other countries, other things that we could do better that sort of you think still needs to be improved in that sort of social enterprise space
0: within Australia? Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting where you're sitting, Victorian, this is hands down, like, you know, Victoria is doing the best in Australia um, at social enterprise. They have, you know, most of the market down there, they have, they're the first government to recognise social enterprise in legislation um, and they've mandated that 3% of procurement for state organizations has to go through social enterprises, which is a big step. Um, They inaugurated the social traders movement and certification process. So so Victoria is doing really well in pushing it forward and their whole agenda has been job creation. And it is, you know, very like it's researched that job creation is a lot more accessible through social enterprise, which is really good. Queensland is following up um, and they, commenced into it they got into it in 2019 and they really started to put a roadmap together COVID's obviously put a put a stop like a slowdown of things and I suspect that New South Wales will be the last Uh, and the reason being is that New South Wales like I don't know just rests on its laurels a bit with respect to the fact that we have a lot of the industry like we have you know in investment banking, that whole, we have the major industry in New South Wales. So I feel it's more about big business and making that happen. Um, You know, we don't have to be so niche about what we're doing. So I think that if we could get the states individually to recognise social enterprise like Victoria, just follow Victoria's lead pretty much across all the states in Australia and then nationally follow that, Mm -hmm. I think that we're, you know, be a good start. There's the whole wider space of renewables and you know climate change. Holy fuck! Like you know, what I mean, you could go on for that for days. And I'm not the the most you know educated across it, but there's no reason that we shouldn't be an energy renewable energy superpower with the fact of how much sunlight we have, you know, wind opportunities, and we're just still focused on coal and gas and you know, what I mean, and particularly with the technology advances in hydrogen we're not there yet but if we can master the hydrogen we should be the leaders in it because we've got the most to benefit with solar and hydrogen we could become energy exporter you know globally Um, so anyway that's and then versus internationally i think generally social enterprise we're behind definitely in other other markets like the uk against america um we're doing okay 10 percent of all the b corps globally so the b corp is the u.s kind of you know, start point for social enterprise. 10% of all B Corps globally are from Australia. And when you think about it, we represent only 2% of the global market, yet we re- represent 10% of the B Corps globally. So that's a pretty good sign. So I think that Australian consumers are behind it, like generally. Um, New South Wales and Victoria, particularly their consumers and their population are very behind social enterprise, renewables, social change. And I think that we've got a promising future. I think that our government just needs to catch up with the people.
1: So a lot of the big corporates and even the state governments have um, funds for startups, um, for-profit businesses. Do they, in some of the states, also have social enterprise grants, funds, investment? Like you said, you mentioned procurement, obviously, which helps to support government spending through it. But but do they also have sort of socially enterprise-focused funds at the moment?
0: Yeah. So social enterprise focused funds or impact investing is the broader term is growing in prevalence massively. Like it's, I mean, if I was to put your money on, you know, working in the finance space, I feel that that's definitely where you'd be looking at Um, social ventures. Australia is a group out of um, Sydney. They have, you know, They did the first social enterprise bonds in New South Wales, and that was relating back to prison involvement from memory. So uh, corrections facilities and rehabilitation rehabilitation of inmates. So offsetting the um, financial costs of government of keeping people in um, jails and through their rehabilitation versus accelerating that process, kind of like what we've seen in the Netherlands where they've basically eliminated their um, prison population to zero. So there is the the strictest kind of stuff like what social adventures does. And there is other, you know, organizations in Australia, small giants, which comes out of the Lieberman family in Victoria, um, is investing heavily in startups, um, in social enterprise startups. And I think that we're going to see more and more corporates move down that path because like the consumers want it and having a purpose, like the massive transformational purpose is what, um, we kind of orientate around Singularity University. A massive transver- transformational purpose is what is such a s- massive sticking point for a company in, in terms of, like, I think it's, it's made my job 90, 90 times easier. Like, I was going to say 90%, but 90 times easier. <laughs> because you're orientating everyone around something that means something, right? There's something that's bigger than you or anything else combined. And for us, it's to solve social issues using a business model around the world. That's our purpose. That's what we're aiming for with everything we do. And you look at Tesla, you know, around electric cars and changing the environment. You look at um, SpaceX, which is we're getting someone, we're going to colonize Mars. Like that's shit that people, they want to be behind that. And so for recruitment, for retention, for cu- customers, for everything, there's like, no, I'm not here to buy something. I'm here to be a part of something. And that, is game changing. So, if corporates and you know the way that they're orientating, I think will start to move more and more towards that.
1: So, do you see social enterprise as the evolution of the charity, not-for-profit business model? Are they complementary? Are there some things best left to charities, uh, or is the a more sustainable for-profit, like you said, like a, what Elon Musk is doing, where the businesses but they're also solving problems? Is that sort of the future? And charities are sort of a legacy model, or what's your take on the interplay of social enterprise with charity?
0: i reckon charity is definitely there's a part to play i would never bag it it's it's such a it's so good for so many reasons and there's so many things that social enterprise can't do that charity will continue to fill forever um and um there's um, always going to be a place for it for instance disaster relief is the obvious one right it's i mean i haven't seen it and i'll probably be proven wrong but i haven't seen a social enterprise model that solves disaster relief right You, you you can't have you know, people are in a situation where they're going to die, perish, you know, food shortages, everything. We just need to get that stuff in there right now and we can't fuck around with it. And they're not in a position to pay. We're going to just do this. right? So this, I think there's always going to be a place for it. Social enterprise is going to be, um, I believe in the future, it's going to be standard. Right. So right now it's like seen as the exception in the future, it would be, it would be the norm, right? So all businesses will be social enterprises um, and it would just be competing on how the impact that they can create, the leverage that they can create. And I think that the interplay between the two is going to happen as well. So charities are more, and I think, you know, it's a super opportunity in enabling charities and helping them migrate across the social enterprise um, because charities should be starting to look at, you know, how they can make their models more sustainable To get away from the tin cup mentality of having to just continually ask for money. Um, I don't think see a lot of social enterprises going to the charity model. Mm -hmm. Albeit, albeit, we just started our own non for profit fund within our organization. Where I see, and I saw this recently, it kind of pissed me off. It was quite funny. But the evolution, and I see if I was to recommend to young people coming through now, is to start up as a non for profit or a charity. Um, and then evolved to a social enterprise. So we had one of our people that came through, um, took so many learnings from us, and then started their own organization, which is in coffee. They started as a non-for-profit, and they went out and they got all the access and support networks from being a non-for-profit. For For instance, like if you're a non-for-profit, you can get access to co-working space, super cheap, you can get government grants, you can get a lot of help, you can get a lot of input. I mean, it's so much, so much help if you're a non-for-profit or charity. And then as they've gone over the years, they've just been open and saying, we're going to switch to be a for-profit social enterprise. And surprisingly, because I just never even conceived that. I just thought that would be disingenuous. but everyone's got on board with it and supported it. And so that's where they're going. Whereas we were always pure play. We're always like, no, we're for-profit social enterprise. and So we knock back things because we wouldn't let go of our integrity around that. We're like, no, we've got to prove a point that we can do it like this. And so, but I would encourage anyone to use both models and get to the better outcome because the better outcome of a sustainable social enterprise in the future, I think the ends justify as a means. Yeah, sense.
1: I think it's a really good distinction about sort of ongoing chronic sort of issues that like several probably be best be solved through a social enterprise because the funding model needs to sustain ongoing support or change or um, uh, efforts versus acute where it is one big fundraising effort, one big relief, and then it's done. But that's where the business model, so to speak, doesn't match acute problems, doesn't match chronic. And, and like that's where, like I guess, where the break, the split point is between it needs to be sustainable to fix long-term problems versus it needs to be short and sharp and one-off to fix a short, sharp, one-off disaster problem. So I think that's a really good um, way to distinguish them. And so looking back, obviously, you've done all these different things. You work with a lot of young people all the time. So I'm sure you're often um, talking to 18 and 20-year-olds. What advice would you give um, maybe your younger self um, if you're sitting across from your 18-year-old self again, all these different ideas, different things you want to do, a bit confused, a bit unsure, getting different advice from your dad, from your uncle, from you know maybe friends or peers. What advice would you give your younger self on what to do?
0: You know, I thought about this when you, you know, put it before we had this, this chat and um, it's such a struggle. Like it's, uh, you know, you think, as you said, I'd be used to saying this and, you know, espousing pearls of wisdom to the students that are coming through, but I just don't see myself in that light. Right. I I think that um, in terms of where we're at and where we're going, it's pretty clear to see some of the future intersections of industry, right? We are going to see vertical farming take off. Like Sundrop has in South Australia has proven the model commercially. Um, and, you know, vertical farming is going to be one of the future industries. Solar is going to be one of the future industries. Like it's going to be so big. It's not funny. It's already, it's already in, in play. So it's like, you know, follow your passions. Everyone says that. So that's, it's, that's a known um try and get those skills that you need, like I said, like leadership for me, um, finance, cash flow, business stuff um, and really try to look at those intersections of future technologies where there's going to be huge opportunities. There's going to be billionaires in vertical farming, there's going to be billionaires in solar. Um, and that's not that's the reason I say that is not because of the money. it's not because of that because I think that in the future the way that we look at, capital is going to be very different right as you're seeing in social enterprise capital is coming across multiple different um dimensions social capital is you know one of the most important So start to orientate your career around where the future opportunities are and look at those different levels of capital social capital social media capital um you know net like people capital and just and goodwill and and how you creating an impact and And financial capital is only one of those avenues, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so looking forward to the future for Project Everest Ventures, what does the next five, 10 years directionally look like? What are you aiming to do? Is there a particular vision, milestone, something you'd like to to do in in sort of a decade from now?
0: Yeah, 100%. Like we've got it very clear about where we're going and what we're doing. Um, Now, firstly, COVID has uh, put a massive... uh, (laughs) you know, smashing to us, like we're at ground zero for COVID, like hundred percent. And it's just ironic that we're on this list and, you know, doing well, and we're probably going to have, you know, a quarter of the revenue in the next year of versus where we were. And that'd be probably a good outcome. So it's like, we were just completely exposed um, because all our stuff that we do is overseas in developing countries. So we've pivoted off that massively. Um, and we will continue to do that. That's always going to be the vision that we're going to, operate in many, many countries. But the first step was to build a training company that can self-sustain. Um, and that's we're getting on the way to that, being complete, where we have really good training products, really good outcomes for students and and that side. And we've moved on to phase two and we're deep in that where we're attracting the companies and the organizations that are providing the technology that we're commercializing in developing countries. And we're looking to create a portfolio of about 25 to 30 um, different things that we're doing overseas in a random whole range of different countries. And the, th- the third step is, you know, the realization, and that is the scaling up of those successful projects with our technology partners to create the future zip lines. And that's still a bit of a way off. So we, um, it's to get through COVID, And on the other side of it, we will be super strong and to build out these partners. And then we've been moving more into the B Corp space. We're building out a whole product around getting companies who are aspiring to be B Corps, aspiring to move in the social enterprise space to be able to do that um, and help them to get there. And that's where we're going to next and working with our students to make that happen as well.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like generating some revenue that's not, you know, reliant on, like I said, travel at the moment and, and doing the training. And then if I understand correctly, the future is sort of almost like being a Y combinator for social enterprise. Is that right? Where you're sort of you're seeding, you're recruiting, you're screening, you're, you're encouraging, attracting and promoting the best uh, future potential leaders of social enterprises or people who might work closely with them, even if not running them, and then also partnering them with the, the capital, the commercialization um, that they'll need to, to sort of scale their ideas and build up that your own system of doing that is that sort of the, the correct way of understanding
0: it yeah that's hundred percent correct 100%. excellent
1: and do you have any final words you'd like to leave the audience with
0: um no like uh well sorry i'll say yeah thank you for having us and put, thank you for putting this together um and you know making it happening and spreading the stories of what we're doing i really appreciate it and it's like it's it's such a crazy thing that, you know, no one else has done this, um, but you're out there making it happen. And I just think that kind of looking at this whole conversation, it's kind of funny that this didn't happen. This I didn't, this happened organically and this didn't mean to happen, but the whole time we talked about social enterprise, we talked about social impact, we talked about social outcomes. We didn't talk about um, the financial side of it. Do you get what I mean? Like, mm. and I think that, you know, I mean so many people like that, the fast starters list is, basically just all about finances and, you know, what I mean? you know, what growth you've done and what revenue and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like the entire organic way that this is gone is around social impact. And I think that people should take a clue from that. Like if you are out there and you're able to solve social problems and connect with people on that emotional level, I think the rest follows. And I'm not, not holding myself up as this you know, perfect example, because we've got so many things wrong. We've failed so many times and financially we're not where we need to be at all. But I think that, um, you know, beyond that we've been able to overcome so many hurdles because of that purpose and because of where we're going in that social impact. And I just can't say enough to thank the team and the people that have been alongside with us this whole way and the people that founded it with me and our investors and everyone. It's just been so humbling. So thank you to all of them.
1: Yeah, and no, I think the whole COVID experience has made a lot of people have a bit of a wake-up call. Maybe they're a frustrated investment banker. Maybe they're frustrated something else. But it sounds like the challenge, which obviously been a massive challenge to yourself and your team, has actually reinvigorated your purpose. And like so that kind of proves the difference, right? It hasn't disillusioned you. It hasn't made you cynical, bitter. It hasn't made you want to quit and, you know, change industries. It sort of made you want to double down and, and be even, uh, you know, more creative, more inspired and push harder.
0: Exactly. That's so true. Be braver.
1: Excellent. Great way to finish. Thanks so much, Wade.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, Derek. It's awesome. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.